tonight on Perch Exploitation. Crabs appears to be very small behind the wheel of this 1956 Dodge. He sits on two cushions so he can see properly. Carmen sits close beside him, a little shorter because of the cushions, and around them is the vast empty space of the car. Leopard skin stretching everywhere, taut and beautiful. The night is sweet, filled with the red tail lights of other cars, sweeping headlights, flickering neon signs. Crabs drives fast, keeping the needle on the 70 mark, sweating with fear and excitement as he chops in and out of traffic. He keeps his dark eyes on the rear vision mirror, half hoping for the flashing blue lights that will announce the arrival of the cops. Maybe he'll accelerate. Maybe he'll pull over. He doesn't know, but he dreams of that sweet moment when he will plant his foot and all the power of this potted up dodge will roar to life. He will leave the cops behind. The papers will say, early model American car drew away from the police at 100 miles per hour. Beside him, Carmen is quiet. She keeps using the cigarette lighter because she likes to use it. She thinks he doesn't see her the way she throws away her cigarettes after a few drags so she can use the cigarette lighter again. The cigarette lighter and the leopard skin upholstery make her feel great. The leopard skin upholstery is why they're going to a drive-in tonight, because Carmen whispered in his ear that she'd like to do it on the leopard skin upholstery. She was shy. It pleased him, those small, hot words blowing on his ear. She blushed when he looked at her. He liked that. Hollywood, the dream and the nightmare. No, I made it. I'd love to have someone to love or someone to love me. It ain't easy being a freak. And we're supposed to do this by treating ourselves to a fancy woman hunt, by turning them loose, hunting them down, and murdering them in cold blood. What you are about to see now is the second degree of torture. We should just bear our breasts to the wind and let nature take its course, right? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Project Exploitation. My name is Nick Cheney. With me, of course, is a man I like to call because it is his name, Dan Jeremy Brooks. Dan, how are you? Another pleasant dead end drive in Sunday. The cars all sitting in a row. Ba 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 ba. The gates are all electrified and tall, and there's nowhere we are allowed to go. <clears throat> you know, one day you're just gonna have to answer the question. I know. I I know. There's gonna be a moment where you're like, you know, the singing's great, but. Maybe maybe a real straightforward response, but until you, until that day, yeah, you 
eh, that day's not here yet. So hit us with what was that a a, a rendition of specifically? It sounds familiar, but I can't quite place it. It's a uh, it's, it's actually a song uh, the Monkees did called Pleasant Valley Sunday. So it's another Pleasant oh. Valley Sunday, and it was actually written by Carol King. And uh, uh, Greg Goffin, uh, who were husband and wife and songwriting partners at the time. So, but it's a catchy little song. Mickey Dolans is the lead on, it and he's just he just he's wrecking the mic. I mean, I love his voice. So, yeah. Apparently, Heidi has a little bit of a thing for him. So, I'm trying not to let it get get to me though. So. Well, that's uh, that's important. Mm-hmm. You, know, you got to let everyone have their fantasies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, my fantasy being, you know, one day you'll just take the show seriously. But um, <laughs> you know, we'll. Uh, We'll see if that ever happens. Mm. Yes, we shall. Uh, We shall see. We shall see. It has been a while since we have recorded. Uh, Taken a little hiatus here for the past few months, but I think there are some great things on the horizon, both for us and for our listeners. Mm -hmm. We uh, both recently just got vaccinated. So I think, you know, quite literally... The creative juices are (laughs) flowing way more freely. Uh, as they create new antibodies and immunities. So this is a very supercharged project exploitation episode mm-hmm. from this point forward. It's true. I mean, I think the last one we did was right at Christmas because we did Black Christmas. But, yes. you know, fortunately, nothing really important has happened in the last three months since that episode. No. You know, nothing really significant no. except, you know, fucking seditionist fucking Packerwoods tore up the people's house like a bunch of fucking cracker ass Packerwoods. Oh, man. I forgot that that's a thing that happened within the break that we took, yeah. or else I would have probably given you a, a bonus episode to get it all out. I know. I've, I'm have i trying to kind of get through it, but uh, I don't talk about it actually that much because I think I get a little scary and people are like, okay, I'm, uh, let's, let's, let's end this conversation. So, but yeah, I did have to at least acknowledge that yeah. there was a Peckerwood riot, so... We, we all have to acknowledge it. That's kind of the problem. <laughs> that's true. Uh, Actually, that's true, all joking aside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So that happened. Of course, we had a little regime change up at the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to think any notable deaths in the uh, interim. Um, Probably. Sean Connery, maybe? Yeah, that was uh, within that three-month period. So, of course, uh, RIP to the best... James Bond, maybe not my favorite, but certainly it became a it became a thing only because of him. True, true. I think you and I actually both. I mean, this is really odd because this is very rare. But you and I both favor Lazenby, yeah, uh, the guy who did the one and done. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. I don't know if it's my bias for that film specifically because that's my favorite film of the series. Sure. But I genuinely think, besides the fact that that film is so good, that Lazenby was a really fun and not threatening bond which mm. i feel like some of them air too much on like i'm not i'm not a, a super opposed to like a i don't know militaristic bond or whatever but i it's hard for me to buy into the playful side that he has to exhibit if i feel like he's you know taking everything so seriously that even his one-liners feel forced you know so, <laughs> right yeah, but, that's very true and that is probably my favorite of the Bond series too, just from plot and uh, atmosphere and locations. It's just uh, brilliant work. So, so good. I, I watch it. I try to watch it around Christmas time every year. Oh, I should do that. Yeah. Well, cause I got the Christmas scene at the, uh, in the middle of the movie where Blofeld gives all of his little, oh. uh, 
allergy patients slash nymphets, uh, <laughs> they're, they're present, uh, amidst a very snowy vista at the ski resort. That's not really a ski resort. <laughs> I totally forgot about that part. I mean, of course I remember all the snow and stuff and the whole, you know, yeah, his, yeah. his compound and everything, which is again, one of my favorite parts of the movie is that whole set design and the, and the oh, you yeah. know environment outside and everything. But I forgot about yeah. the Christmas pressies. That's really great. actually. Yeah. Ah, great, great movie. But we are not here to talk about Christmas, even though we both may want to. And even though the listeners may want us to. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. But just because we did that last time doesn't mean we're going to do it again, okay? Yep. We're here today, dearly beloved, to gather to celebrate this thing. That's supposed to be the organ in the background of uh, yeah. Let's oh, Go yeah. Crazy. Sorry, go no, on. No, 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 I'm with you. I was, uh, I was feeling it. I was feeding <laughs> off of it. Uh we are here today to talk about a movie called Dead End Drive-In. Of course, this is the movie from 1986 all the way from the land of Australia. And of course, that makes it an entry into the, uh, I guess some people say Quentin Tarantino coined it. Some mm. people say somebody else before him did. So let's split the difference and say Quentin Tarantino endorsed uh realm of what's known as Ozploitation, uh, which were these low-budget, cheap exploitation films made in Australia. That, that is as, as broad as it sounds. You know, there, it wasn't strictly horror. It wasn't strictly sex. It wasn't strictly any one thing. It's just Australia started to really put out for a little while, uh, in the 80s in particular, uh, that this, of course, was a part of even things like Mad Max was kind Definitely. of a, a progenitor of that and whatnot. So um, I will admit I haven't seen a lot of exploitation, but considering that it is obviously merely a term to denote a country of origin as far as shooting and whatnot, I don't know that anyone has to see a lot to quite understand the ethos of it. <laughs> it's more of a uh, descriptor than it is a uh, thematic tie-in. Oh, definitely. Um, well, you know, just a really fast history, but um, yeah. before the late 60s, Australia didn't really have its own film industry. I think Maybe a couple films had been produced by Native Australians, but for the most part, the stuff they showed in the theater was uh, foreign, you know, uh, American or Asian or, or uh, European or Russian or whatever. But in the late 60s, the government decided to start a subsidization. Uh, some of it was giving money like grants and then some of it was tax breaks. And essentially, almost overnight, the Australian film community uh, exploded. I mean, sometimes you'll hear, even hear it called the Australian New Wave, although typically they're referring to the stuff that's maybe a little more um, highbrow, like uh, Peter Weir's The Last Wave or Picnic at Hanging Rock or The Year of Living Dangerously, mm -hmm. which are all great movies. Yeah. Uh, or um, Fred Skepsy uh, had some stuff, too. Uh, there's, there were several directors who actually, a lot of them are still working. But um, I was reading about this the other day, and I don't remember who said it, but they said something like, fortunately, the Australian government didn't discriminate between high and lowbrow. So everybody from Peter Weir to Brian Trenchard Smith, the uh, director of this, could get money. So, I mean, you could get stuff that was very exploitation. And then you had stuff that was almost in the middle, like Peter Weir's first film was The Cars That Ate Paris, which I would love to do an episode on that one day. And that's very much 
high and low blended. And of course, it's got this car fetish thing, which so much Australian stuff does, like Mad Max. That seems and- to be the one thing that I could pick up as being uh, clearly uh, multiple entries in, in, in this very particular uh, region. <laughs> yeah, it does seem to be a large part of identity. And it could have to do partly with the fact that the distances between cities are so large, you know, um, and, and there's so much land. You know, they say the same thing sometimes about Canada, where it's like bands would go on a tour in Canada and be like, yeah, but dude, the distance between these two cities is so big, it's almost not worth the money to go to. Because, you know, I think the same is true probably for Australia. But anywho, that's another here or there. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure that was at least somewhat born out of the fact of wanting to showcase the outback itself. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you have this entire a specifically unique ecosystem that most other countries just do not have. And also it's mostly public land, so to speak, you know, like it's not right up in a metropolitan area. So it's very easy to, well, I wouldn't say easy, but it's very doable to shoot in these kind of wide open spaces and whatnot. And, and of course, one thing I love about Dead End Drive-In is that it kind of flips that on its head. You know, if if a lot of these movies like Mad Max and whatnot is about uh, or showcasing that kind of traversal aspect of the car exploitation, Dead End Drive-In goes all in on that uh, ennui that comes when you're stuck, you know, in one place, in, in a place that's as vast and almost desolate as as the Outback itself. So True. I think we're going to jump right into it. Yeah. And um, Dan, do you want to go first? Sure. Sure. I'd love to. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, thank God we both speak fluent Australian, right? I mean, yes, thank God for we that. Did brush up. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have known that Arvo means afternoon and a furphy is a rumor that strains credulity or two up, aka swee, is a popular game of chance in which people throw two pennies in the air and lay bets on if it lands heads or tails. Am I right? I mean, thank God we knew all that already. Yes. So going in, we were, we yes, were I'm initiated. not learning any of that for the first time. Oh, right now. no, no, naturally not. No. But all joking aside, um, I saw this. Uh, back in the early to mid aughts, uh, with my brother Jeffrey, uh, back when we were doing the thing where we were renting every single sci-fi movie in alphabetical order from the video store. Anybody who's listened to episode four already knows all about this, so I'm not gonna bore everybody. But, uh, and, uh, it very much enjoyed it at the time. And, you know, it's funny because that was actually a period of time where podcasts were actually just kind of happening too. I mean, at the time they were, they were kind of coming into existence and my business at the time, uh, we started doing them when they were still fairly new. So it was like so new that like we'd have a link to the episode, the podcast, and then we'd have to have like an explanation underneath, like, what is a podcast you ask? Well, it's this, you know, but of course, back then we didn't call them podcasts. A lot of people don't know that they're back then we called them, you know, potophono, uh, mobile, Lydian, simul, diner, robot, uh, susocasts. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, but it got just, it was too long. (laughs) It, It was just ridiculous. Every time we said, you know, Potophono, Mobilidian, Simultana, Robot, Susacast, it was like, so we just shortened it to pod and cast, the first and last syllable. So, so yeah. So crazy that, that uh, we all used to call it that. I know. I totally forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, uh, a more naive time in many ways, you know? I, I remember Steve Jobs, uh, you know, up on that stage saying, uh, one more thing. And then just putting that word up on the screen, mm-hmm. uh, white text on a black background, and everyone Definitely. just 
stared in awe and repeated that word back at him as if we've always been born with that vernacular. We just right. didn't have permission to say it. So right. uh, what a great moment in tech history. Oh, yeah. And the Bauhaus lettering, the font was beautiful, you know. But yeah, so it's, it's just that's, you know, something that happened. So <clears throat> anyway, now, of course, everybody's got a podcast. Including the two of us. True. So. Yes. And ours is better than at least 10% of them that exist. I would concur. I would concur with that. And it's not a competition, but I, I would say that objectively speaking, yes. Yeah. So. Uh, so, okay. So I got to start out and talk about like the very first couple seconds of this movie. Uh, just get that opening pre-credits title cards thing. And it plays to me like a really hilarious parody of the beginning of Red Dawn from two years earlier, complete with like the overwrought, you know, teletype sound effects and the preposterously accelerated apocalyptic scenarios. And I mean, I know in the past you and I have talked in depth about my feelings regarding Red Dawn's premise, specifically the opening predictions about geopolitics and how I feel it. Again, strains credulity a bit, but so I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into it, but just go on to say that, you know, John Milley's clearly did not understand international relations at the time, did not get the nuance of diplomacy in the mid eighties. I'm just saying. Well, I'm glad you didn't get into it. No, I didn't. No, that's, that's all I'll say no. on that. But yeah, so it's like inflation, unemployment, crime wave. And it reads like, it, it honestly reads almost like Trumpy's insane inaugural address, you know, the American carnage, you know? Yeah. And I just, yeah, it's so anyway. But one more thing, I mean, the Red Dawn thing, just one more thing. I just, you know, it's just, it's like, you know, come on. I mean, like the Sandinistas of Nicaragua who had just gotten done throwing off the yoke of decades of kleptocratic authoritarianism, they're going to just stop in the middle of rebuilding their own nation so they can go help invade a nation that they're currently trying to achieve a stable relationship with. Give me a darn break. I mean, just come on. That's just sloppy, lazy, intellectually lazy writing. Well, it does star Charlie Sheen, so I don't know what else you were expecting. True. You're right. Powers Booth is in it. Oh, I love him. And Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good people. But Yeah, I know, but it's a terrible film. And um, John Millis, you know, he will have to pay for that one day. He'll, he'll, that's just more time in purgatory for him. That's fine. You know, that's his choice. Uh, okay. So no, but seriously though, leaving aside all that, you know, I was thinking so. when we were, when I was watching this, it reminded me a little of actually the characters in Rollerball, which I know you and me just watched recently. Mm -hmm. And which is like the idea of history that's unfolding around them, but is largely beyond their knowledge. You know, in, in Rollerball, the, obviously there's the whole thing about the recent history of what they call the corporate wars, which is totally unknowable to the plebeians, which is, you know, the Jonathan E character and the rest of the rabble or whatever. And I think in the same way, the characters in Dead End Drive-In, you know, they hear rumors and they probably make guesses and they certainly feel the effects of upheaval, economic upheaval. But for the most part, they don't know what all is happening. And you can see it in the powerless, um, the resignation of the people. You know, these folks, they don't know the ins and outs of the worldwide economic meltdown that, of course, we, the audience, have just been made privy to in the pre-creds, as I was saying. So in a way, it kind of reminds me of... Um, something in academic circles they call subaltern history, which is the sort of facts on the ground history. It's history from the perspective of people who have like an anti view of things, which is often like in this case, the least illuminating perspective, at least in the sense that they don't see 
the causality of all the things. You know what I mean? Like, for instance, uh, and I, I do want to talk a bit about this, uh, Peter Carey's short story. He uh, Peter Carey is um, a very well-regarded Australian novelist, short story writer. I, he's often mentioned as a possible recipient for the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, every year, his name kind of comes up. And uh, I'm sure eventually it'll happen. He's still fairly young. But he's probably Australia's most um, acclaimed and universally lauded fiction writer. And he wrote this short story called Crabs, which is, of course, the main character in Dead and Driving. It's absolutely fascinating. It's just a 10-page story. But in the story, <laughs> it's interesting because when you talk about like characters not knowing what's going on and basically just kind of scrabbling for scraps. There's something happening here. <laughs> Mostly saying hooray for our side. Uh, but it's like in the story, uh, there's a strong possibility that the car boys, who we never actually meet in the story, are possibly maybe just purely like a boogeyman invention of the government for use as a mechanism of control. Like now in the film, it's clear that they do exist. I mean, we see them coming upon the scene of the wreck, but still there may not be quite all that many of them compared to what the government's making it out. I mean, in, both in the story and in the film, we're mostly kept in the dark as to how big a threat they are. Cause we don't really see them at the drive-in at all. I don't believe. That's my big thing is that I think you're onto something because of the fact that we do not, see them in the drive-in at all, which I think the omission of them clearly almost unambiguously spells out that even if the government did not create them from scratch, Mm -hmm. the government has essentially deputized them to do (laughs) their, their dirty shit uh, and given them this free pass because otherwise they would be rounded up because they're not that many degrees removed from the same kind of undesirables, quote unquote, that they are rounding up at these uh, drive-ins. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see how useless the authorities are, which is obviously by design. I mean, the city police, they're just kind of ineffectual or they're just unwilling to get involved. Like, there's even a point where uh, where uh, Frank is like, hey, what are you going to do? And they're like, hey, man, that's your problem. You know, but they've given up. In a sense, they've given up the same way as the inmates in the drive-in have. You know, there's this line from The Clash, uh, Red Angel Dragnet is the song. Uh, it's Joe Strummer. He's kind of speaking. He's not even singing. It's a very odd performance, but really cool. And he says, not even law enforcement agencies can save their own, never mind the people. <laughs> and I think that's kind of what we're seeing here. And, and, and of course, not only with that, the other thing about these wrecks is that it shows another example of how the people don't know what the hell's going on. Again, when you view history from below and you're kind of left in the dark, there's this you can see how it kind of devolves into this increasingly cutthroat competition between the tow truck drivers to secure the rights, you know, to the accident scenes, right? And it's like when you're living hand to mouth and you don't have a perspective that allows you to see things from a larger standpoint, you don't have the time, you know, you don't have or the energy, frankly, to say, well, gee, who benefits from this? You know, qui bono is if you say. And in some ways, it's kind of a grotesque, uh, but sort of, sort of logical terminal point when you live in a zero sum form of capitalism uh, where the competition eventually just is going to become overtly violent, <laughs> you know, which I don't know. It just, it, 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 it struck me as very intriguing. Um, 
But I mean, that said, I, uh, there are things that, I mean, the image of Frank beating those carboys off from the wrecks with a wrench in one hand while holding on to his company clipboard with the other, that is truly, truly wonderful. I absolutely love that. So even though it's tragic on a human scale, on another, it's just a, an amazing image. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, so I think that's, Kind of what happens is these guys like crabs, like Frank and, and like the people we meet at the drive in and really everybody other than maybe a couple people, they're totally everything that happens to them is kind of robbed of context and deeper meaning. And, you know, and of course it's, it's even worse in some ways because they're constantly getting barraged by what appears to be this nightly news <laughs> where they're like, you know, they're coming onto the wreck. You know, it's like, uh, apparently that, by the way, is a real thing. I read an interview with Peter Carey and he said in the seventies, there used to be a radio show that was live. It was late night and it was out of Melbourne and it was just live them going around from one accident to another. And he, uh, describes it in, and I quote, a program dedicated to car accidents in Melbourne at night, tow trucks, cops, death, injury, and alcohol, end quote. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of striking because you see that and you're like, well, yeah, wow. and I'm not even judging because I don't think that's specific to Australia. Pretty much, you know, we're, we're no different as far as mm-hmm. however it manifested over here is, uh, you know, our fascination with things like public access at a certain point <laughs> when we thought we could put anything on it. That was a huge uh, boon. Uh, in a way that was quote unquote outside of the censor boards. Right, right. It was kind of like the idea was that it was going to, in some ways, give people more um, access, so to speak, to yep. to art and stuff. But instead, but all it did was gave Gary down the street his own show that nobody wanted to watch. Yeah, honestly, that's pretty much perfectly succinctly said. Yes, exactly. But public access did give us two things that we can all be thankful for: Mystery Science Theater three thousand. True. And Blue Midnight, the New York-based show by uh, Al Goldstein, the uh, creator of Screw Magazine. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. I've never seen an episode of it, but I've always wanted to. I have a DVD set that, oh. uh, yeah, I'll, we'll, we'll watch some of those sometime, yeah. I would love it's to. It's a wild, wild thing. <laughs> Such a precursor to, like, what HBO would then go on to do, you know, and, like, make it pretty much late night stamp for that 90s early aughts you know era sure but before there was any inhibitions or even attempt to structure it and you know push it into a consumable for the masses it's just somebody's pure it on tv it's it's great you know and it's kind of freeing sometimes if you assume nobody's watching yeah like i mean sometimes when i'm writing songs i'm like nobody's gonna hear this anyway and you are totally free to do whatever you want and then maybe a few years later you're like Oh, people did hear that. Woof. I don't know if I would have been that unguarded and honest. <laughs> yeah. But I, I mean, yeah. speaking of the whole access uh, thing in the news, uh, I don't know if you felt this way, but I felt like the news crew sequence there felt strongly reminiscent of uh, Nightcrawler from 2014. For sure. Well, I mean, obviously, there's like the crew swoops in and they're clearly impeding <laughs> the emergency <laughs> workers. So it really put me in mind for that. But I mean, even like the color palette and that highly 
uh, directionalized lighting. I wonder if it might have been an influence on Dan Gilroy, who was the writer-director of Nightcrawler. I, I don't know. I wondered what, if you thought that too, or did that come to mind? Or I definitely thought about that. It definitely gave me the whole, if it bleeds, it leads, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, screed. <laughs> and I, I will say, the other thing it reminded me of, and it's probably the era, because they're from the same time period, but um, it did have a similar approach, uh, probably because it's a, another gonzo low budget thing mm. but uh of how norman lear satirized the media in mary hartman mary hartman totally which was the very sensationalized version of man on the street type interviews that um Cleet weisenheimer is the name of the reporter <laughs> on that show and anytime there's anything happening in fernwood usa he's on the scene literally uh even when it's out of town like when uh loretta and charlie accidentally hit a bus full of nuns with their car and <laughs> Whatnot, but the way he swoops in has got this very uh, similar vibe that I was getting from uh, from these two uh, feuding, uh, I guess, nightcrawlers. Basically, so yeah, definitely though, I, I did get that vibe. Well, and they do swoop in, like you said. I mean, they come in and they're asking Frank. They're like, because they've obviously interview him all the time. They're on a first name basis. They're like, so Frank, what do you think caused it? He's like, ah, booze probably. You know, again, it's like when you're at that lowest level where you're seeing history from below you don't have that context and so you don't have a larger picture and and i think also actually at that point you know the news when you get the news all the time you watch it every night or you listen to it on the radio every night you know you would think you become better informed but in a way it's almost like the opposite where because you don't understand like like i said the context or why this is happening or what the larger problem is it's just like um it's like pouring hay on a haystack when you're looking for a needle, you know, and it's like, and, and, and so these just become these distracting blips that kind of enthrall you, like without making you any wiser, basically. Absolutely. So I have a confession to make. Um, I didn't watch the movie. No. Son I, of a, uh, I'm pouring my heart out here, people. <laughs> no, I, no, go my confession is this, which is. Uh, ever since I got into exploitation movies, you know, a while ago, this has been one I put off for a while. And it's precisely probably because I'm not a big fan of the Mad Max films. And I really thought this was going to be cut from the same cloth, which I definitely see shades, but it's not, not the same at all. Um, but I just, I, I, I really don't go in for dystopian movies, whether they're from the exploitation era or not. So, while I'm always interested to see anything, especially when I'm pushed out of my comfort zone, wasn't really like jonesing to watch it, so to speak. That's fair. Having seen it, I fucking loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I like am mad that I didn't watch it earlier when I first heard about it, you know, five or so years ago and when I was reading through every all the titles and whatnot. And so after one time viewing, I, I thought it was fantastic. Here here's some of the things that I really responded to one thing is i wasn't quite prepared for how creepy it is you know Mm -hmm. i was very much knowing the premise i thought it was going to be a lot more 1984 like stoic and just kind of like you know this is what we do whatever Mm. but What's interesting is the juxtaposition between the daily life in this dead-end drive-in, where you see people actually living a quote-unquote fulfilling life. You know, it's one that is fulfilling to them 
so they believe because they've been conditioned to because they are given and afforded a lot of i wouldn't even say privileges but i would say like maybe space because when you when you look at it all it's it's amazing what that can do to the human mind where if you tell a person this is yours you know this you, you know you can't leave this space you know uh, that's a whole other conversation but mm-hmm. everything from this wall to wall you know go nuts you know have fun this like this whatever and it's amazing how that can really and i'm sure i'd be susceptible to this too but how that can really uh draw up the blinders on people where they're like well if i'm in control of this that i don't have that in my real life right you know exactly in my real life i have no control over anything i don't own my own house i don't you know whatever right right so it's almost like these choices are being made for me and thank god you know for that because it's been one of the uh things that have been plaguing my mind i think in that everybody deals with in that existential way and so what i love is that we we really see a culture that while we the viewers are smart enough because we've read enough dystopian fiction to never really buy into it as an actual you know place of happiness, it, it, it at the very least is a convincing argument as to how this is possible and mm-hmm. and and maybe what some people could get out of it uh, because of how bad it is on the outside. And when I say I wasn't prepared for how creepy this movie is, what I really liked was that on top of that, there was no real indication of, quote unquote, the rules. You know, the government is never seen in this movie. Mm -hmm. Obviously, extensions of the government are. But, you know, we don't get the scene with the president or whoever (laughs) saying, like, I want this, whatever. So we still have a weirdly claustrophobic look at this horrible regime that is only vaguely explained. I mean, Thompson, the leader of the drive-in, I guess, the the owner, it's really unclear as to how for or against he really (laughs) is because they never really come down on the side of, and of course it's a mix of the two, but I really was expecting some kind of shoe to drop where it would be revealed what his entire stake is in this. And I love that it never really revealed that. It really left it up in the air as to whether Thompson is like the most willing participant in all this, or if he seemingly, and I would hazard a guess that this is probably true, that he's a victim in all this too. And that's why he's so hell-bent on keeping this regime up and running. But all of his weird references and the galactic computer in which, you know, (laughs) all of these created this atmosphere that I absolutely loved. And I just love the fact that it, all of this happens almost, quote unquote, while they were sleeping. You know, they literally, after their tires are stolen, are told, like, just go to bed. You know, <laughs> th- th- there's not the weird kind of, not weird, but, you know, it's not like the opening of uh, Salo where the the fascists send their, you know, point men to go round up the, uh, right. you know, men and women or children, I should say, yeah, uh, and, and, and bring them to their place where, where you get that kind of, you know, sick in the pit of your stomach feeling. Totally. This is way more almost surreal where you can't quite tell what is happening because nobody's 
asking the right questions Mm -hmm. and the person who has the answers won't give them anyway. So it's this weird tension between those two parties, specifically Krabs and Thompson, Mm -hmm. uh, for those two to really dance around the issue becomes an issue in and of itself. And it, 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 it almost explains in a very succinct manner why so often political progress can never really be made mm. in anywhere, you know, because you have two parties who are both victims of the larger enemy yes. who will not actually sit down and discuss, you know, what's actually in it for them as a collective unit. Right. And uh, so as a socioeconomic experiment kind of, shot on film. I just thought this was so fascinating. So, so colorful. And I don't mean that just via the colors. I mean that like literally like just peppered with a lot of great side characters totally. and just little moments that really accentuate how this drive-in is like kind of like a cool place to watch, you know, as a viewer. You kind of don't want to leave a drive-in because it, it is such a fascinating place from a cinematic standpoint. But of course, just like Crabs, you are kind of jonesing to to see what's out there because you know it's not right. You know that even though no one's really explaining it, that there's more to life than this and whatnot. And the biggest lie that capitalism ever sold was that there wasn't. Mm-hmm. And um, right. so I'll kind of wrap up my opening thoughts and just say, I thought it was fantastic. I, I really thought it was just, I thought I was glad that at the very end we got some car stunts. I mean, there was a little bit at the beginning, you know, but like yeah. we literally get to end the movie with him driving through the star driving sign, which I got to say the not necessarily foreshadowing, but the visual repetition of that sign leading up to that moment. uh, I didn't know that that's where it was going. And yet the moment it was happening, it was like they couldn't have ended any other way. So that was just a wonderful, wonderful way to kind of build up to that moment without really hitting the audience over the head with it. And I also like the fact that Krabs is certainly the protagonist and the hero of the story in that he's a pretty morally just person. You know, he very much wants to not be in this. He And he would like to help others when he can, like when he helps people, you know, like in the bathroom or whatever. Mm -hmm. But independent of him, what I like is that it shows how good people can also be uh, targets and victims of that mob mentality because his girlfriend is very quick to, uh, Carmen, I should say, is very quick Mm. to not only be susceptible to, like, the the fantasy that is the dead end driving, but then the moment other races are brought in, she has no problem giving in to what's being said by, you know, the other members of the dead end driving to the point where I was very uncomfortable during those scenes in a good way because I really didn't think this movie was going to be that blunt about this social hodgepodge, which is that, yeah, like I said earlier, you give somebody control of something they're also going to be prone to having their worst thoughts of, you know, who's allowed to have the same thing that you have. And so when that whole, not even subplot, but scenes erupted into the dead end driving, I keep saying the dead end driving as if it's not just the driving, but. But no, it's a great title. Though. <laughs> it is though. Uh, <laughs> but when that part infiltrated the driving, um, I, I was very caught off guard in, in a great way because I didn't think the movie had it in it. I thought it was going to be a little more cheeky. But by the end, it's just it's just fucking exhausting, and and it really nailed that mm-hmm. uh, longing and just the way that 
all of this just gets worse by the second. So I, I was a huge fan of this. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, is there a direction you want to go with this based off anything I said? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, well, first of all, I, I love that you loved it because um, I, I liked this movie when I saw it in the mid aughts, but I was not prepared for how much I really liked it this time. There's so much more going on that I just didn't catch before. Um, and maybe that's just something that has to do with maybe, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as the size of the screen I watch something on. It's like, well, you know, I don't know if I quite saw it or it didn't have the same impact. But I, I agree. The idea of um, when you're, this is what, like what I was kind of saying before is like when you're when you're so blinkered and you have so little control, like you said, you have so little that they give you a little and you're like, all right, I can have this. You you promise I'll have this? Fine. You know, it's like um, Howard Beale in uh, Network during one of his Mad Prophet monologues. He's like, I know what you're thinking. You just want just leave me alone and let me let me stay in my apartment and have my TV dinners and blah 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 and just leave me to my and, and just let me have this little thing. I mean, I'm not quoting it very well, so I mean, other people will know what I'm saying. But yeah, it's true. It's it's like there is this feeling like uh yeah i got a thing here oh yeah 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 like what dave says dave's the uh guy with the pompadour who's uh got a switchblade i think uh i do see his point because uh they're in the bathroom and uh crabs is like well don't you guys have a life outside this and dave's like you know hey staying alive and being imprisoned is a lot better than being free to starve to death you know but, but again that's history from below perspective where you're like well, this is the best thing I have. I mean, I thought that was fascinating that they actually went out, him and his mates went out and stole cars so they could come here and get stuck here. That was really interesting. Like, we heard there was a good deal going here. And, but also what you said about the socioeconomic metaphor, I guess, you know, it's, uh, it reminded me of a couple things. Um, have you ever seen a movie called Blindness by uh, Fernando Meirelles? No. He's the guy who directed uh, City of God, a uh, uh, Brazilian filmmaker. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, but no, I haven't seen Blindness. Blindness is a, it's English language. Um, it's got a great cast, but it basically in that movie and in this movie, you're seeing a kind of microcosm of social anxieties and socioeconomic woes, uh, within a society that's only like a few hundred people or so. So you're seeing what you would see writ large on a worldwide scale. You're seeing within this small community or little society and you're seeing how it breaks down. And of course, I also, and I, I almost don't even want to say anything because I, I don't want to start going off on this, but I honestly thought a lot about Hamsterdam from the third season of The Wire, oh, you know, yeah. yeah, where it's like, okay, you're going to do drugs, legalize it, we're going to make it, we're going to legalize it, we're going to make it safe in this area, you know, but anyway, I don't want to talk about that because I love The Wire and, and I feel like oh, I Oh yeah, can, I was going to say, yeah, we, we could go off for hours for that. But, I, but I'm right. with you in that that almost ghettoization of yeah. uh, practices that you disagree with. You know, it's kind of like, well, that's wrong, but it's okay if you basically give up your freedom to do it. Yeah, right, exactly. And you, you do notice that. I think it's one of the things I noticed. And it's not just true, the characters in the drive-in, but I mean, just all over, but especially the driving, they're basically resigned to being there forever. And uh, like you said, obviously a great many don't mind it, but I think that's what makes Krabs different from even his brother 
and the rest. And, and honestly, I, I, I was watching this and, you know, I'm always thinking about, well, what was going on at the time? This is 86. And I'm like, I could easily see some, you know, right wing reactionary mag or journal from the time. Like, I don't know, like, uh, the new criterion was one of them. I don't know. They're still around probably writing a think piece where they like hold up this film as proof positive that a social safety net just breeds laziness and complacency amongst the poor. Ugh. And I'm like, I could totally see a guy writing that up. But anyway, it's there. Like I said, there's a lot of resignation to everybody. And I think it also comes out in, in a sense, in the art direction, because everybody seems kind of willing to turn themselves into two dimensional beings. You know, you've got, I mean, there's the hair, the jewelry, the overwrought mannerisms, the self-defacement of their cars. The whole thing feels like, you know, like they're they're fulfilling the worst assumptions of their captors, like to spite them. Yeah. Like it's like, okay, you think we're a bunch of weirdo reprobates? Fine, we're going to put on a show, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And which and it makes sense because I mean, you look at like I started thinking about prison tattoos. Like you were saying about control, right? Convicts they say they have so little control over any aspect of their lives. So much of their individuality is has been forcibly taken from them that, you know, in tattooing, in a sense, self-mutilation, if you will, becomes like one of the few forms of self-expression left in prison. And in a sense, I kind of thought that too, because you start seeing like this predominance of like logos and emblems, like car emblems, even like on necklaces and like really cartoonish signifiers being worn on them, like the earrings. I mean, you know, there's like one guy's wearing a swastika, another guy's an iron cross. There's all these like one woman has very nice headlights. Oh, I loved her. I did not remember that at all. And that's one of my favorite shots in the movie is that shot of her. She's uh, climbing out of the uh, police truck, but she's probably just turned a trick and she's kind of getting dressed and she's walking back. I mean, it's just a absolutely perfect image, like suitable for framing. <laughs> I, I completely agree. In fact, one thing I'll mention about the, f- the various fashions and whatnot and the importance placed on their appearances, yeah. even in universe, because one of the first things you're introduced to is the fact that in the shower area that they have their own salon, like that's important enough to, you know, to crop up over something else like a makeshift basketball court or something, you know, right, whatever. right, exactly. What I find interesting is that that's such a huge commodity in this uh, in this prison, and yet nobody really stands out. You know, it's like they do right. all this work to, you know, either do their hair or like we had mentioned with like some of their interesting fashion choices. Mm-hmm. And yet what's great about the yeah costume design is that it, it doesn't really make a dent and it, they don't quite realize because they don't want to uh, that that their individuality is really not coming across. And individuality only has a place outside of a place like this because mm-hmm. you're actually you, – you, you can't have counterculture if it's the only culture. <laughs> you know? That's a really good way to say that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I, I absolutely love that. And I loved how uh, both foregrounded it was to the point where it felt like it was in the background by the end of the movie. And yeah. it, it just didn't matter. So I, I, I ate that up for sure. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think the first time I saw the movie, I probably just was soaking up the 80s ambience and going, well, you know, 80s, the fast fashion and, and the new romantics and, and all that stuff, which I love. But looking at it now, I don't think it's just a matter of them trying to capitalize on – well, it wasn't even punk at that point. It was really more new wave because it had been kind of co-opted by – uh, advertising and the record labels kind of figure out how to market. I mean, it was, and I'm not 
dissing it. I enjoy that stuff too. Um, and it did grow out of punk, but at first I thought it was just kind of these new wave styles or whatever that were just happened to be, okay, let's try to do weird stuff. But I think looking at it, I think there's a deeper meaning that uh, Trenchard Smith is going for. And it has to do with, like you said, everybody's trying to be an individual and, and really, uh, as far as I could tell, no one person looked the same as anybody else. Exactly. No. They were all very different, but they all kind of blended together in that weirdness. Yeah. And like you said, without a, without a culture, the counterculture is in a, a vacuum. It's kind of like in an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, of course, the two-dimensionality, like, really comes through, and I didn't remember this at all either, when it's really revealed in the last 30 minutes, where you get the arrival of the Asian immigrants. Uh, just quick aside, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about modern Australian history, but I know that Asian... Right, I was wondering about that. Well, anti-Asian sentiment in Australia was, still is, actually quite real, unfortunately. Well, and we're seeing how prevalent it is here, too. Just this very... Oh, yeah. Uh, well, guess this whole year, obviously, and it's always been uh, prevalent, but unfortunately, if now... Well, not unfortunately. Fortunately, people are paying attention to it. Right. It's unfortunate as to why they're finally paying attention to it. It is. No, yeah, it's true. I mean, I guess I should say for the listener who may be listening to this much later that um, at this time in the last year after uh, Trump started uh, referring to COVID-19 as the China virus or the Kung flu and a bunch of other really offensive shit, in the last 12 months or 13 months, there's been an enormous spike in anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian violence. Um, in New York City, I heard it's in the last 12 months, it's gone up like 1,800%. I mean, some astronomical figure like that. And in other parts of the country, it's it, overall, the overall average is pretty close to that. And so, I mean, look at, yeah. uh, not to get down a rabbit hole, obviously. No, but no, it's fine. One of the best movies ever, but also one of the best movies made about racism look at the treatment of koreans in that movie you know mm-hmm. i don't think that movie is uh necessarily overtly racist uh necessarily against the two shop owners but mm-hmm. i definitely think that there is a almost sidelining of their burden and perspective uh that Spike Lee falls into when he made that movie, mm-hmm. partly because he's doing it from his own perspective, and there's probably some authenticity to uh, you know the demographics of the neighborhood that he was raised in and whatnot. Sure, but there's something to be said about that. You know, at the end of the day, uh, you know that they're not part of this cultural conversation when they absolutely are, and they are suffering uh, similar injustices. So anyway, well, that's very true, and I mean, I love do the right thing so much. Um, but it, oh, and I, and I still do. Oh, me too. And um, but you're right. I mean, there's always going to be limitations because people are going to write about what they know, and definitely the Korean Americans are present in several really crucial scenes. But you're right; they're not privileged with as much dialogue as say um, the African Americans or the Italian Americans. I mean, I was going to say even the Italian Americans, uh, you know. Uh, uh, John Totoro. I was about to say Stanley Tucci Totoro. <laughs> even because uh, I'm racist. No, even John Totoro's character is afforded more sympathy mm-hmm. than those two characters. Like he's given a spotlight to be an angry person and a hateful person, which is a form of humanization. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, you do see nuance within him. I mean, like the conversation he has with his dad, it does start out relatively intelligently. Yes. And then pretty soon he's, he starts getting into the epithets and stuff. And then I think eventually Roger Gouver-Smith is uh, trying to sell him a photo through the window. And he's like, see, look, dad, this is this shit all the time. You know, yep. so it kind of devolves. But you're right. At the beginning, there is a little. Um, so, anyway, I didn't mean to take us down that. But No, no, no. I'm glad you did. Uh, because, I mean, it's actually very... Unfortunately, au courant at the moment. And, uh, but it, it did get anti Asian sentiment in Australia did get really bad in the 70s and 80s with the arrival of the Vietnamese, what they called the, well, they called them the boat people. Um, I don't think that's necessarily. Okay. Cause I was wondering about that because there was specifically Vietnamese slurs. So I couldn't yes. tell if that was a random, cause I, I mean, obviously I assumed that this was based on something, but I didn't know if the Vietnamese slur was indicative of something at large, which it may seem like it was. Well, I mean, some of it has to do with proximity in that, um, Southeast Asia is, um, almost connects with the Australian continent. Uh, almost, well, it kind of does, actually. I mean, you've got like Papua New Guinea and uh, East Timor there, uh, which is uh, actually might be part of the Australian continent, technically. But then you go up a little farther, you've got, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia. And at Vietnam, because it was a, a major war zone, of course, um, in, especially in the 70s, as uh, America started pulling out and the Arvin was, they weren't, they weren't going to be able to defend the South for very much longer. Basically, people started fleeing. And one of the places they went was Australia. And so there is a, a large Vietnamese community. I mean, probably about second, third generations now. But I mean, if, well, if the film Romper Stomper is any indication, which came out in 1992, uh, that xenophobia had only gotten way more rampant. I mean, that is... That is a harrowing film to watch. It's, it's very good, by the way. I recommend it. It's the first thing I saw Russell Crowe in, but it's uh, the violence is very raw. But anyway, I, we do get a better idea, though, of like Carmen, her nascent shallowness. <laughs> you know, she's she becomes more <laughs> two dimensional and cartoonish as it goes too. Yeah. Uh, when they arrive, you know, the racism really bobs to the surface, and it's interesting because she apparently feels no fear at being assaulted by the incredibly aggressive and decked out and obnoxious Caucasians. But it's her first thought when she sees these meek and like clearly exhausted looking families, you know. And again, it's during those last 30 minutes that I see crabs really stepping up and becoming a more intellectually developed and even fully formed human being. But, well, more on that later. I have, I have some thoughts I'd like to talk to you about that, but it relates to the car chase at the end. So. No, I actually think um, that's a very good point. In fact, I think it's probably going to be a good time to take a little intermission because I do want to open up the conversation of about the way this film depicts a, an awakening of a political conscience. Yes. Because I think a lot of us are experiencing that. I'm not saying everybody. Certainly, mm -hmm. some people have always been politically conscious. But I think there's a certain wave uh, happening in the last four years in this country, uh, that being America, uh, where a lot of people got that switch flipped on. And it really does take a very dire situation for that to happen. So Agreed. I think we'll uh, open that discussion up as soon as we come back. But for right now... Let's take a little break. I uh, made dirty calls uh, because I'm a creep. It was only a phone call, but it was a work of Exactly. If you mother f***ing don't 
you're acting like a schoolboy. You know how I feel like a schoolboy. I've never felt like this in my life. The Carboys have come about slowly and become more famous as the times have got worse. With every strike they seem to grow in strength, and now that imports are restricted and most of the car factories are closed down, they've got worse. A year ago, you only had to worry if your car broke down on the highway or in a tough suburb. They'd come and strip down your car and leave you with nothing but the picked bones. Now, it's different. If you buy a used car and you try and get a new Carby, say for a 1956 Dodge, it's sure to come with some carboy gang or other, and who's to say they didn't kill the poor bastard who owned the Dodge it came off? The official word is not to resist the carboys, to give them all your car if you have to but you don't see a man giving his car away that easily. So a lot of drivers are carrying guns, mostly sawn off 22s. And if you've got any sense, you keep your doors locked and windows up and keep your car in a good nick so you don't get stranded anywhere. The insurance companies have altered the wars and civil disturbances clauses to cover themselves. So you take good care of your car because You'll never get another one if you lose it. And you don't go to drive-ins. Drive-ins are bad news. You get the odd killing. The cops are there, but they don't help much. Last week, a cop shot another cop who was knocking off a bumper bar. He thought the cop was a car boy, but he was only supplementing his income. And we're back from the break. Ready? For the B-Reel, if you know what I mean, because we're talking dead and driving. And, of course, because we're talking exploitation films. So it's all, you know, uh, prudent to our conversation. Mm -hmm. Before the intermission, I had mentioned how one of the things that was most struck by this movie is how it depicted a very specific feeling that I think, like I had mentioned earlier, that a lot of us have been feeling in this country of this uh, awakening political consciousness. And mm -hmm. what, I, what I think is interesting is that Dead End Drive-In does a great job in kind of bringing it down to basics and showing that the only thing that truly enacts change and uh, appeals to our human nature is when we ourselves have enough empathy for the people around us to to fight for that change that we would want to be fought for because it's usually you know when we look at things like privilege and whatnot in our own society it's you know obviously we all are well uh, some of us i should say are always striving for a better world and trying to put other people's uh, perspectives side by side with our own and you know certainly there was a lot of white support for something like black lives matter but it is not a done deal because it is against human nature as we've seen time and time again to fight for the interests that have no bearing on your own mm. which is why i think dead end drive-in makes an extremely potent point about 
political science uh, and depicts that until it happens to you, <laughs> you don't really have a dog in the fight and you don't particularly care. And I feel like that's kind of Crab's heroic journey in this entire thing because but supposedly this has been happening, you know, in this dystopian universe. And what's great is they don't really talk about it. It's not like when they're at home and he's talking to, I think, Frank or so. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and it's not like they're talking like, oh, man, did you see the news today? Like those camps at the drive-ins are, right. you know, running rampant. And I get that part of it, I think, is secretive. But it's, I think it's one of those less of a secret and it's more of what we would call a lie agreed upon you know yes. kind of like the children in cages that are happening currently right now yeah. uh, both by our prior administration and our current administration that has not cleaned it up yet and it is the thing that is happening and it's also a thing that we ignore i don't mean that literally i'm not trying to take anybody's activism out of their own hands or anything like that but every day Every single citizen, myself included, sits by and, and does a fucking podcast instead of actually trying to help. <laughs> we are allowing a situation to happen. And I think that's what I loved about this movie was that it really showed that at our baser instinct, we do not fight for each other. We only fight for ourselves. And we don't realize that the power that comes from within as far as fighting for ourselves can be utilized to both better ourselves, but also better the community that we are a part of at large. So that's, totally. that was my long-winded ramble of, of kind of what really struck me about this movie. But uh, what say you about the kind of political conscience of this film? Oh, I, I mean, I, I think you're bang on, actually. Um, and, and I mean, I think it is something we've been learning is, well, I guess I've been kind of politically involved off and on for about, I don't know, like 14 years. I mean, I'd followed politics before then, but a direct actual involvement with like candidates or, but uh, something I noticed was that on the left, it's kind of a running joke that they don't show up for each other. It's like, you know, the group that's the environmental group doesn't show up for the people who are protesting the children in cages who are, don't show up for yep. the women's reproductive rights, who don't show up for the LGBTQ, yeah. who don't show up for people who are against extraordinary rendition and torture, you know. But I mean, I feel like in the last four years, like you said, there has been this sort of, you know, I, my dad and I talked about this once right after Trump was elected. But then, you know, anyway, um, I said, you know, I wonder if it's like, AA, you know, in AA, they say, you know, an alcoholic, he has to hit bottom. And it's like, maybe America is starting to hit bottom. And at this point, people are kind of waking up and going, okay, your fight is my fight. This fight is all of our fight. And when we all work together, we win, you know, but if we all kind of stratify ourselves and silo ourselves off into these different camps or or different interests or whatever, they just can slough us all off because the groups are too small. So anyway, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, I'd love to talk a little more about Krabs's uh journey, like you said, you know, um yeah. before I do that, I, I kinda want to give a little context about how it relates to the short story. So I want to tell you a little about the short story's ending. Okay, yeah. And that's what we heard in the beginning of this episode, correct? Yes, yes. That was an excerpt from Peter Carey's uh, short story, Crabs, from 1972. And indeed, I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to our actor friend who performed those lines for us, the ebullient and effervescent Heidi Schultz of the Riverfront Playhouse, uh, which has been a, a mainstay of downtown Aurora, Illinois for Gosh, it's it's definitely over 40 years now. And it was actually founded by her parents. So visit uh, riverfrontplayhouse.com. 
Uh, thank you, Heidi, for that. So, so wonderful work. Oh, yeah. Oh, and also she did the one in the middle, too. That It's, it's a twofer, in case you were wondering. So right. it's it's a it's a beautiful piece, by the way. The whole thing. It's only like ten pages, but the prose is just it's really good. Too long, didn't read. <laughs> oh man. Uh I laugh so I don't cry. Not about you not reading, but I just in general. Anyway, so okay, so to circle back to the last thirty minutes of the movie, uh, like I said, the and particularly the chase finale, you know, it pictorializes crabs really developing as a person. The story doesn't have any car chase in it, unfortunately, uh, though Krabs does escape. Boo. I know, right? I'm like, oh, God. Well, you know, the story ends in a weird way. He does escape in this sort of weird transmogrification or whatever you want to call it, uh, where basically he turns into a tow truck. Uh, now, I don't know. We're never really quite clear if it's his imagination or if this is actual surrealism. Ooh. It's kind of got this like J.G. Ballard, Donna Haraway vibe where like yeah. human and, and machine melding. Anyway, the point is he escapes. Yeah. But the ending has this super unsettling haunted quality to it, which is similar to the end of John Cheever's short story, The Swimmer, and, and, and also the film. And I know you're a big fan of the film. Great movie. Yeah, I love the movie. So good. And But it's it's that feeling of a guy who's like locked outside of what was once his home, and he's trying to figure out how the hell he got looped back there during his journey. So there's this like mournful, despairing ending where the main character kind of realizes that freedom – uh, freedom's just another word that's been co-opted by the big shots and trained of its meaning, just like Chris Christopherson said. So, uh, but it's, it's like Pepsi presents freedom, you know, with a word from our spokesmodel, Kendall Jenner, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, that's kind of how the short story ends with this very, very sad feeling of, you know, he escapes, but then he realizes there's nowhere to go. Uh, so, but the, the film climax which is quite a bit more slam bang, uh, specifically the car chase. It's like a trucker's ballad fantasy. You know what I mean? Like he, I mean, he hijacks a tow truck at the end, which just kills me because at the beginning of the movie, it's all about like, well, I'm getting my license. I'm building up. I'm going to become a tow truck driver. But that said, in those old trucker ballads, the police are basically just kind of doing their jobs. I mean, they're just trying to catch you for speeding or like, I don't know, you're past your weight limit or, you know, maybe you got contraband on board or something like, but the police in this are straight up plain dealing villains. I mean, the minute Krabs gets into the tow truck, these guys immediately open fire with fucking M16s, kind of a disproportionate use of force, I felt, but what? I know. I, maybe I'm just nitpicking here. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I love about the chase is that, that makes it so unlike any other chase I can think of in a movie. Because it's set in a drive-in, it's mostly just them weaving back and forth through the aisles of cars. Yeah. So it's like they have to keep slowing down to turn. But it's awesome. Right. Oh, I love it. I <laughs> absolutely love it. It never felt like slow to me or anything like that. Like the way it was choreographed was genuinely riveting, despite the fact that it is the antithesis to something like Mad Max. Right, exactly. Well, and I, I will also say, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I think this is one of the maybe the few times in a movie or TV show car chase where I've seen an explosion like that was that big. And it actually makes sense because you've got like what with all the hundreds of cars all jammed next to each other. So I can kind of see how the explosion could get that big as opposed to like, say, the A-team where you're like, wait a damn second. That explosion shouldn't have been that humongous. You know, it shouldn't be scorching yeah. the clouds you know, or whatever. Yep. 
So uh, I mentioned earlier about the last 30 minutes where I feel like Trenchard Smith is kind of signifying that Krabs is at last, you know, he's transitioning into adulthood and self-determination, like you were, you were saying, where you're kind of waking up to empathy. And one way Trenchard Smith does this, and I think he does it very brilliantly, and this is one of my absolute favorite parts about the movie, which I could not get enough, is basically in the action scenes at the end, the images on the drive-in screen mirror what Krabs is doing in real time. So, like, there's martial arts stuff going yes. on when Krabs is fighting the truck drivers, and then there's scenes of car wrecks during the car chase. There's an explosion on screen during the big explosion. I mean, you can barely see it, but it's it's there, you know? Yep. So, we're, we're seeing these, like, visual metaphors for Krabs becoming basically the hero or central character of his own life. And I see Krabs at that point abandoning kind of the more like surfacey masculinity where before it was all about the trappings of being a cool guy, such as having the right car, or the right girl. I mean, I mean, even her name, like Carmen, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's this whole car, yeah. but you can really contrast that to the passivity of the other people at the drive who, like I said, have kind of become these sort of slothful two-dimensional caricature things, you know. But I think the thing that Trencher Smith shows us with the movies behind Krabs, where they're parodying his movements, I think part of the reason he's doing that is he's basically saying that Krabs is, instead of staying in the audience, literally in this case, like a driving audience, but, yes. you know what I mean? Instead of being in the audience like earlier, Krabs in those last, you know, 30 minutes – Krabs is now taking control of his life and he's gaining the agency to become his own action star. But not necessarily action as an action movie, but a person of action. No, no, no. Go all the way. I, well, sure, sure. I love that. Well, and I mean, he definitely... I think that's spot on. Well, thank you. I mean, he does act like an action guy. I mean, definitely. But like, when you see those last shots of him driving down the road, it's like the first time he looks like a true grown-ass man. He looks comfortable with himself, you know? Oh, yeah. And it's, it's not like he wasn't a good guy before. Like, he... he you know, at the beginning when he shows up to the wreck with Frank, he is not callous about the injured motorists or anything. He yeah. he appears to be like the only one who's like noticing and horrified by like oh yeah battered bodies like falling out of the wrecks and and then of course he demonstrates repeatedly empathy and solidarity with the with the the refugees. But like I said, it's it's those last few minutes when the last thirty minutes I should say when the Asians arrive that we see crabs really step up and I think it's also significant that he finally gives up on trying to get. Like, he, he he finally decides, I'm not going to be able to drive that 56 Chevy out of there. Yes. You know what I mean? It's giving up on this fantasy that he never had in the first place. Exactly. It was, <laughs> I mean, that, I think, one of the, the most telling details. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he borrowed it, after all, or rather, more kind of stole it. Yeah. You know, the car is like this slowly crumbling status signifier, you know? Yep. And so, basically, at the end... And again, this is another sign of agency and I think just maturity. He stops making decisions based on the aesthetic consideration. Like, okay, I got to drive that 56 out of here. And he starts working on like a real honest to God way out. It's like, uh, whatever it takes, I'm just going to get out now. And and and, and I've, I've made up my mind. I'm going to go. And if nobody joins me, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, even the poignancy behind the idea that he leaves Carmen behind. I mean, that yeah. was a decision that I was like obviously hoping would happen, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. I just saw the writing on the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet I didn't think the movie was actually going to, you know, I thought there was going to be some random come to Jesus moment uh, right before he was about to escape where it went too far even for her. Right. But I love the fact that part of uh, him taking control of his agency is unfortunately 
leaving behind what he may or may not love because he understands that the, it's been poison. And, and I think we, like I said earlier about what we've all been feeling in the past four to five years, I think there's a lot of us that have mm-hmm. uh, maybe cut ties with people who have uh, been a little too susceptible to uh, what's been going on in this country and, oh, yeah. and, and how we were unfortunately finally done with it you know and, and it's and it's maybe shame on us for letting it get that far because maybe we played a part in allowing it to to simmer but there's only so much you can do as, as an individual that at least for your own mental health because that's part of what needs to be nurtured uh if you are going to be a politically active person um you know it, it cannot be a factor in your life and and, and so I, I absolutely love that and totally. you know it's funny that you say that the short story ends on a note of surreality because mm. i don't think the film necessarily is going for this but i would almost argue that like you said which i totally agree with mm. where he's becoming kind of this quite literal uh, action star of his own movie and i think that part is spot on mm. But I think almost what's interesting is how he's, like you said, mirroring the images on screen as he's kind of zip zigzagging through the <laughs> aisles and whatnot. Yeah. And I love how it's very grounded because it's not like he, it's not like a weird yeah one to one analog of like like something out of uh, Jordan Peele's Us or something. Um, <laughs> right. But what I like is that it's very grounded and and that's happening. It's just very casually backgrounded. But by the time he gets into the tow truck. And the movie's about to, you know, to end or whatever. He finally does actually cross over into a realm that some people might argue is not real, you know, because mm-hmm. the the image of him, which is awesome, uh, going off that ramp to uh, to escape and crashing through the sign is such a not far fetched because obviously this was certainly a high strong film, but it's such a almost instantly iconic moment in the movie itself totally uh as to what was possible before and what is now possible that you know while i actually don't buy into this i'm gonna throw it out there and say that i totally kind of see that almost being this this um you know this it's finally come uh not full circle but the, the transformation is complete where you know maybe this uh <laughs> this escape is not uh, "Quote unquote," the great escape that he thinks of it in his mind, but it's actually, you know, uh, something far more sinister, and he's just that far gone or whatever. Mm. But I, in 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 reality, I do think it is supposed to be taken literally because I actually do take the ending, no matter how um, jazzed he is, obviously to be out. I do take it to be uh, in the same vein as the Graduate. You know, ah, uh, yeah, I was wondering if you're going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's this what now uh, feeling where it's like. In there, you had something. You were you were able to develop the vernacular uh, and the lexicon for what you were feeling because it was such a small scale thing. You were able, you know, it, it wasn't as abstract as it is in the real world. Totally. But now you're living in the real world, and it is so much harder to enact any change, to actually stand up for your own beliefs. Like that's something we all wrestle with. Like we all believe things, and yet. Every day we do something that goes against those beliefs, whether it's we ignore something, whether it's we laugh at a joke that we know is not funny, whether, you know, Mm -hmm. and and, and I'm not saying that that means we're all monsters, but we are constantly indoctrinated with these very things that we say we're against. That work is being done to us effortlessly, whereas on our part (laughs) is requiring a lot more of us uh, to, to overcome that than it is for the people 
to force those messages down our throats and whatnot. So mm. it is such an uphill battle. And obviously, you know, he's not quite prepared for that, you know, whatever. But that's still hopeful in a way because there is that note of, you know, at least I'm not in there, you know, like, like right. it, it's going to be hard, but, you know, hopefully this is just the beginning. And so I, I absolutely certainly loved the ending as well. I thought it was a very, very well choreographed. Like I said earlier, oh, yeah. it was a car chase set in a parking lot, so to speak. <laughs> and it exactly. was genuinely thrilling and, and, and it was just well shot and whatnot. Um, one thing I do want to definitely mention is kind of going all in on the relationship between Thompson and Krabs, because I think that relationship and that dynamic for me is the most fascinating. Um, and I think for me, what's interesting is, like I mentioned earlier, we don't quite get a full grasp on Thompson's uh, complicity. We certainly know that he's complicit in all of this, but we don't know how many guns are aimed at him, so to speak, right. you know, right. and, and, and that makes all the difference. But what's interesting is he truly does seem to try to cultivate the counterculture, or I should say the environment for the counterculture to exist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he, like he, whether it's because he's past his prime or because he just so happens to quite literally be in the profession to, you know, show something as radical as films, he at the very least understands the innate desire to have this rebellious spirit and to need a space to, even if performatively, like all these people are doing in, in the drive-in, right. but to express that nonetheless to the point where he's genuinely trying to get people to enjoy themselves there. I don't quite take his behavior as completely malicious of like, I just want you to not fight back. I genuinely think part of his thinking is like, well, if you have to be here, you know, have a beer with me, you know, right. like I'll make sure we can always get our beers. And, you know, I mean, we saw what the cops bring in the drugs and whatnot. Like you were talking the wire season three hamster. I'm like, mm. he's fully on board for trying to make this quote unquote work. And I find that whole philosophical bounce back between him and crabs of like uh, basically you know back and forth of what they have to say to each other which is like if we're in here and if we're under your rules none of this has any actual pleasure or value you mm, know mm-hmm. and of course he's like trying to argue how could it not you know these are just actions these are what you say you want when you're out there and <laughs> you may not even be able to afford it as much as you can in here mm. so what am i not giving you so i was just curious what you maybe thought of uh, their dynamic and whether you thought it was i mean i, I almost thought it was father and son-esque um, like quite literally Cat Stevens-esque, <laughs> where <laughs> you have a very kind of rebellious young voice trying to like quite literally scream at the older generation and say, you don't understand how bad we have it, man. And then the older generation is saying like, you know, I'm giving you a lot of leg room here because this is not how I was brought up. But uh, okay, man, go off, you know. So uh, what, what did you think about the relationship between Krabs and Thompson? Well, yeah, you're right about the Thompson thing. Uh, it is a little bit of a father and son, you know, Cat Stevens thing in a way. Um, for one thing, I was really struck by the fact that when Krabs tells him off near the end, Thompson seems genuinely hurt. Like, he's like, oh, I thought we had a little bit of a rapport. Like, I don't think he was just bullshitting him when he said, oh, I'm going to keep you in mind for something. He was like, he saw a real potential there. And of course, there's the part near the end where after Krabs has wrecked the first tow truck, 
and the cops are running out and you can hear Thompson going, you don't have to kill him. You know, and of course they don't care because they just open fire, but it's, it's intriguing. I agree. And I will say too, the image, or I should say the visual of a kind of desolate drive-in in in 2021, uh, getting its quote unquote due (laughs) any way it can. Right. Is uh is is a image that hits a lot harder, I think, in this era than it would have back then. I mean, it would have been a cool image, I think, back then. But this seems almost eerily prescient, which is like, yeah, you know, this industry doesn't really have anywhere to go anymore. But um, yeah, if you want to stay relevant, uh, hey, why don't you uh, round up the kid? You know, whatever. And, right. and so anyway, that part. I mean, between the sentiment of these people being stuck in one location and the anti-Asian racism, mm-hmm. I was like, this is a weirdly 2020, 2021 movie. I mean, the last theater I've been in, the only theater I've been in in the last calendar year was a drive-in theater. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, that's true. That's true. Because we went yeah. to, yeah, back in September. That's right. So it's a, it's a weirdly timely uh motif for sure so well just one thing about that and i yeah. i've been i was trying to figure out a way to to mention this quote because i thought it was such a mm. well a validation i guess of exploitation cinema in in some of the the hidden currents of society and how they reflect that but i was reading this academic paper by uh rebecca john k i want to think is her name and it's called not quite mad max brian trenchard smith's dead end drive-in from 2009 and she basically says like i haven't seen anybody write anything about this. She's like, you know, most of the critics at the time dismissed it as a weak Mad Max ripoff, which is obviously not the case. It's the opposite. Instead of being in the wilderness or the outback where it's man against nature, it's all these people enclosed in this very suburban type area. Also, as someone who just watched Mad Max for the very first time, the original film uh, last week, and then just watched this movie this week, uh, hit you with a little hot take and say, I enjoyed this more. Oh, I, I definitely like this more than Mad Max, at least. I mean, I, I like the third one, Beyond Thunder. I actually, I, I guess I like them all, but they're a very specific kind of thing, and they're not certainly as multi-layered as this one. It's much to my surprise, you know? I agree. But So she has this thing where she says, uh, Trenchard Smith enjoys making genre film and does not overstep the mark and sermonize. Clearly, however, he intends to make a point about Australian race politics. Australian films featuring Asian migrants or refugees are rare, and Australian films featuring detention centers are even rarer. This very clearly locates the narrative as a phobic one haunted by fears of the other and demonstrates that genre cinema, once typically screened at (laughs) drive-ins, is often an excellent barometer for society's fears about social change. And I thought... Bam! Exactly. Yeah. See, this is how we keep finding all this intriguing stuff just below the surface of these films. I mean, even a movie like Evils of the Night, we're finding all sorts of interesting things that reflect the times, that reflect the anxieties. I, I just, I thought she said that so well. I just loved it. Yeah. No, I completely agree with all of that. I think, um, I think one of the things this movie was doing that a lot of exploitation films do in general is showcasing the value and oppression of counterculture in general, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. is, is, is when something new crops up, 
the first instinct and reaction by anybody in power is to essentially try to put an end to it because what does that signify if not a change of regime and right. and that's the last thing anybody in power wants uh, so anyway i t- totally agree and this is true of business leaders too. They'll tell you, like, we want the status quo because we don't want violent change because that affects the economy. You know, what they want is this nice, steady, yep. steady thing. I know, thing. Wow, what a word. <laughs> a nice, steady climb or descent, but not, you know, not violent Ooh, change. There so you there you go. But you're right. I mean, in a way you look at, again, I was saying like how punk was essentially, first it was, they were trying to suppress it. And then they were like, well, maybe we can co-opt it. And so by 1986, you can see elements of punk that have been kind of, I don't want to say sanitized because that's not always true. Some of the new wave stuff was as, as janky and thorny and transgressive as anything else. But you could see how Madison Avenue and the labels and corporations were trying to find a way to kind of fold it into the culture, which is something they always do. Yeah. Well, and it's partly a victim of, you know, the observer effect, which is, Mm. you know, when all eyes are not on it, it's allowed to be its natural self, you know, and that is where the the fruits are really bared and whatnot. But, you know, the moment it gets into a, a, a genuine recording booth and, you know, and the resources are given to it in the same manner that it would be given to anything on a national platform. No matter how hard you try to emulate what it was before, it, it becomes something else. That's very true. I mean, like we were talking about that earlier about how sometimes when you don't think anybody's listening or you don't think anybody's watching, you can kind of do things that are just wild and experimental because you're like, well, what the hell? You know, like you were saying about the public access stations yep. where it was like, I don't even know if there's an audience. I literally don't know if a single human being's watching this. Yep. So I'm just going to do whatever the hell comes to my head. And you do get really individual visions out of that. So talking about new wave, um, fashion and all that, uh, I, I feel I would be remiss if I did not talk a bit about the murals and the art design. Yes. So, okay. So really fast. I just want to mention all these names because the work they all did was stupendous. So. Imagine- Imagine that they're floating across the screen as you're saying this. Audience, I'm saying. Exactly. It's it's like a crawl. It's like... So, costume design by Anthony James, production design by Larry Eastwood, art direction by Nick McCallum, and then the graffiti and mural art was done by five guys. It was, well, five people. I don't know. The people who make the burgers? Yes, the five guys. The titular hamburger. With those salty, salty fries. Pentagram persuasion. Yeah, yes. Anyway. Um, sorry. So <laughs> graffiti and mural art was done by Vladimir Sharaponov, Ricky Albert, Colin Holt, David Humphreys, and Rodney Monk. And the reason I mention these guys by name is these kind of like day glow saturated color schemes and junk shop and neon new wave sets and costume designs is like liquid crack to me. It is like, just shoot it straight into my veins, baby. I just found myself looking at all the small details and constantly rewinding to look more closely at the room, see what was written on the cars and the walls and just any free surface. Like there's a, I don't know why I find this so funny, but there was a bit of graffiti at the beginning that says, we saw the great white massacre. Thanks, apartheid. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, thanks, yeah. apartheid. It's like, thanks, Obama. I know, it just killed me. But then like some of those like boombox hybrids are just like the sort of artwork I would buy. Actually, in fact, there's a, 
a local artist, uh, a really great artist from this area, Anton Whitek, who I think is Whitek. I've never heard him pronounce his last name, but W-I-T-E-K. He creates these sort of medium scale assemblages that you can hang on walls. Um, check out his stuff on Facebook. It's awesome. But anyway, um, and then, you know, the police trucks that had those like nifty flashing letters on the grill on the sides, and they seem to yeah. apparently come with their own supply of dry ice, which is yeah. nice. You yeah. know, it gives it a little atmosphere. Yeah, you know. You know what I mean? And, and like I said before, the costumes were so inventive. I mean, like, not a single person looks like anyone else. I mean, there is a duder walking around in a banana suit at one point. I don't know if you saw that. I don't think I got that one. It's only, like, one shot. And I'm like, what is this? It is just like a parade of guys walking along, and one of them's in a freaking banana suit. It's beautiful. It was probably in the same shot that the headlight woman was in. Uh... It's actually a little later, but it's in this. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but I mean, it, 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 the other thing, and I did not remember this at all. Uh, and this was something that really bowled me over. I mean, almost as much as the crabs action hero thing with the, um, pantomiming of the, uh, film screens behind him, the, the way Brian Trenchard Smith chooses to present and photograph this stuff, there's like several long, really superb tracking shots of, you know, teeming humanity, you might say. Yeah. And it's with these clearly very carefully choreographed and blocked out movements that are for all the characters. And so each performs their little action as the camera falls on them. Yeah. You know, I, it was just this beautiful, uh, almost balletic kind of uh, choreography. And it reminded me very pleasantly, because I love that stuff, of filmmakers like uh, Peter Greenaway, especially like... Greenaway, who uses like dollops of glorious color in his stuff, like in uh, The Cook, The Thief, The Wife and Her Lover or Prospero's books. There's a lot of like tracking shots where you're laterally moving across and the characters are all doing their own action. I just I loved it. There's just this constant busyness and movement. And there's always something new to spot in the um, panoply, if you will. I mean, there's like you said, I mean. The gal with the uh, headlights or like, okay, the camera will truck past some dude and he's throwing a knife in the air. And then they moves to like somebody spinning a trouble light around for some reason inside a corrugated tin shack. And then it, yeah. you know, moves to the gal with the, the headlights and then it moves to the guy popping out of a trunk after apparently a nap or something. That one tracking shot yeah. specifically that I think you're alluding to that because there were multiple, but the one that goes across the aisle, I think at night, mm -hmm. um, where everybody is either exiting or entering a car, yeah, is, is one of the is one of the best sequences of the movie because it says a lot without explaining anything about what the hell anybody is doing, but it really sets up the stage for what uh, kind of kinetic movement is happening on a daily basis in this place. Well, and it's the illusion of progress, but it's like I said, it's like busyness. It almost feels like video game characters yeah. who are meant to just move the plot forward where they're just doing a loop. Yep. Some guys just like, you know. We call those NPCs, non-playable characters. Ooh, I like that. Damn. Surprised I didn't know that. That's really good. But it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? The guy who's like, he's just waiting for you to walk up to him so he can ask you the question and then you're going to answer yeah. and then it's going to move the game forward, you know? But it's like, they're just doing this one action. Like, you can imagine them almost doing it in a loop. And I mean, that that tracking shot, that one is beautiful. And then yeah. there's another one when they first walk into the, uh, oh God, what is it? The Easy Eats or whatever it is, the diner. Yeah, Easy Eats. Yeah, Easy Eats, that's it. And um, there's like somebody with, 
some crazy ass hybrid boombox sitting there. And then there's like two dudes doing like the worm for some reason. Yeah. The moment I saw breakdancing, I was like, okay, we are finally in the eighties. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Somebody is doing that in the background of every movie ever made that was made in the decade of the eighties. Well, at least I should hope that was happening. Oh no, it's been proven. Well, well, any film that didn't is clearly detrimental and probably not actually eighties, eighties enough. So I'm just saying not to put an acid test to it, but I'm just saying, but you know, then there's even the guy who's like, rolling by on the roller skates, sweeping up. I mean, it's just never ending, man. It, it All this detail is something he, Brian Trenchard Smith did not need to do. It, he could have easily just had a few extras and dressed them in three or four types of stuff or made the sets two or three types of things. But instead, every single inch feels like its own weird eccentric thing yeah you know one of the easiest things i think to do in a situation like this when the narrative is uh is what it is is to essentially uh break up the uh i would say extras and side characters into gangs so sure. that way the costuming department can essentially create about six or seven different costumes and then just do little variations for each person that's in that uh, grouping and this movie completely resists that temptation and like i said earlier while i do think that this is a uh you know a drab like version of individuality where i feel like no one does stand out even though nobody is actually dressed like the other person right um it, it's a it's a wonderful uh, wonderful display of that for sure Oh, yeah, I agree. Like I said, there's all this busyness, but there's no real movement. And the same thing's true. There's all this individuality, but there's no one who really stands out, like we were saying earlier, you know? I absolutely love that. And, and, you know, like what you're saying about uh, kind of developing gangs, like, I mean, this is certainly a trope in a lot of exploitation films. You know, like The the Warriors is a fine film. That's a good example. That was a movie I I thought about when I watched it. Not because it was super similar, but there's a certain rampant counterculture flair that is happening that is very similar yes can you dig it um so on that note there are several just little small sight gags or little inside jokes i wanted to mention and this is stuff that's really deep and you know who knows if anybody even catches most of this but okay so the car that crabs temporarily hides in during that cricket duel with uh has a you know like the really tall guy you know yeah it has the word zap emblazoned on the hood and at the time the guy who plays Haza, whose name escapes me unfortunately he was actually in a pretty famous australian band at the time called jojo zap and the falcons so i think there must be some sort of joke there there's all sorts of weird graffiti type jokes like during the shootout at the end one of the cars that the policeman is firing from behind has the words like kapow spray painted on it (laughs) it's again it's like another way to kind of metaphorically externalize the action so instead of like the screen behind them it's the vehicles or the stuff that's in front of them the uh uh, things that are hiding behind. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of, you know, having a political conscience is to start becoming aware of the semiotics of your environment right. and, and realize how it's reflecting what's actually happening. Oh, right. And I mean, I think of somebody like uh, Godard as being one of the most obvious examples where like he really, he tried to lay bare all the things that were being subtly done in uh, political discourse and in advertising, which I don't think he drew much distinction between, in fact. But, uh, okay, so there's another great inside joke, too. So Thompson has a poster for the John Landis movie, uh, Into the Night, 
in his projection booth? Yes, with Jeff Goldblum. I saw that. I mean, not the movie, but I saw the poster, yeah. I just saw it for the first time a few years ago, and, and I enjoyed it, actually. It was very good. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, Michelle Pfeiffer, I think it's from 85, so it's definitely in the right era where it would have been maybe a year old by then. But the thing is, John Landis is famous for putting the phrase see you next Wednesday in every film he's ever made. Like literally even like it shows up in the video for Michael Jackson's thriller he directed. I mean, it's in every single movie. So when the cops are leaving after dropping off the heroin at the drive-in office, Thompson tells them, okay, see you next Wednesday. And I was like, uh, Trenchard Smith, you sly mongoose, you, uh, well played, sir. That's so, pretty great. I know. I loved it. In fact, it happened so fast. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, that, that's probably a coincidence. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, there was that Into the Night poster before that was very prominently displayed. So I'd like to think I'm right. I might be wrong. I don't know. Yeah. And then uh, one other thing I'd say is um, two of the films at the drive-in that are playing behind crabs are actually... Are his films? Yeah, which is so interesting. Like The Man from Hong Kong, 1975. And Turkey Shoe from 1982, which is like another one of those most dangerous game yeah. uh, hunting humans death race things. Which you mentioned uh, on the podcast, actually, Turkey Shoot. I did, and I've been meaning to watch it. Uh, and, and watching the little clips I did from it made me want to watch it even more. And then yeah. both of those are considered like pretty high watermarks for exploitation. So yeah. it's it's cool that he was that self-reflexive, although I'm sure there was probably some budgetary considerations too like hey i could just use my own films which i maybe partly own the rights to or, or i work or the company i am at i can sweet talk them into having them in the background but it works brilliantly whatever the reason one of them was uh the movie called snapshot which i've seen yeah. uh, vinegar syndrome put it out uh on disc about a couple of years ago and that is a very good exploitation film it's very different than the ones we've been talking about as far as like kind of Mad Max this or Turkey Shoot where there's actually not a lot of violence in it. It's more of this weird uh, almost TV movie sensibility where mm. it's about a quote-unquote serious topic but not really. It's, it's more sleazy than that but it's definitely more of a domestic drama. Uh, anyway, you see that for like a scene or two when it's um, probably the least showcase film but at a moment in which there, it's quiet which makes sense uh, that movie is playing in the background. So there were four movies total, I'll just name them really quick, that were featured in the drive-in. We see four movies, which is The Dragonflies, uh -huh. One More Minute, which is also a.k.a. Snapchat, uh -huh. uh, Treasure of the Yankee Zephyr, and, of course, Turkey Shoot. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. From what I understand, I mean, like I said, you know, The Man from Hong Kong is like, I think, the first kung fu Australian film, and it's very highly regarded even now. Like. Yeah. I'm sure um, someplace, you know, Arrow or, or Vinegar Syndrome or someplace has, has released it or plans yeah. to at some point because it's – I've noticed it come up several times in the stuff I've read about. So, it's interesting. Awesome. Yeah. So, anyway, um, so I guess in the end, I originally – when I was watching the film at the beginning, I thought, wow, I really – I'm really enjoying this. It's, it's just like what I remembered but maybe even more in depth and, and maybe more nuanced. So I was kind of like, okay, four stars. And then the level of, like I said, it's almost like a Peter Greenaway-esque 
level of choreography and set design and costume design and character movement, that bumped it up another half star for me because it just showed such care and craftsmanship. I just absolutely ate it up. Like I said, I kept rewinding to watch those things over and over. And I was seeing new things literally every time, even if I rewound it three or four or five times. So then it became four and a half. And then at the end with Krabs becoming self-actualized, if you will, and becoming his own action star, I was like, I got to put this up another. So it's 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 going to be a five-star film for me. Hell yeah. I Boom. very, very much in agreement with your enthusiasm for this movie. This was my first time viewing, so I'm probably going to be a little reserved as I am wont to do. But this is a four out of five first time viewing. I thought it was pretty much fantastic. I thought it very much shouted at me to be rewatched very soon and and to really soak it in but even from a first time viewing i was so so pleasantly surprised by how much i could get out of it upon a first instant reaction and and how much i think it will as time goes on i think as i mentioned earlier the movie felt weirdly timely in 2021 True. so it, it, imagine what it'll feel like in 20 years when america is no longer a country now right. um so mm-hmm. uh, four out of five stars for me very much enjoyed it so great pick dan because that was your selection thank you yes thank you. uh every once in a while i will give you credit it's oh. true I have to squeeze it from you like just yeah. water from a rag. I'm rinsing out, but yes, you yeah. do. You will. You will do it eh, every once in a while. I might take it back though. Um, mm-hmm. So let's so move on to the, the A-list. Hmm. Did I give it away? I'm sorry. Spoilers. Okay, cue the music. <laughs> Such a beautiful, beautiful piece of music. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we are doing the A-list, of course, which is where we take the B-movie we just talked about and we pair it with a slightly older, more sexy sibling. And uh, let's see, for tonight, I got pretty hung up, understandably so, on the kind of candy-coated form of oppression where you know mm-hmm. it's just that's not quite as dire as you know a lot of other kind of movies will take the dystopian i mean it's dire but it's got this uh superficial layer of placating uh-ness if that's a word but totally. um the movie i was reminded of is actually a movie i finally watched for the first time a couple weeks ago so it's probably recency bias but it's a movie from 2009 called gamer Ah, nice! I know, you've been bugging me to watch it because you've been saying I would like it, and you were right. I thought it was wonderful. And um, I think Gamer, starring, uh, what do we got here, Gerard Butler, right? Mm, Yeah, yeah, Gerard Butler, Michael C. Hall. You know, there were a lot of parallels there as far as, um, that's a slightly bigger scope when it comes to, it's not set in a single, you know, location. It is truly taking on the infrastructure at large. But it's a very similar thing in which a person, played by Michael C. Hall, comes up with this quote-unquote brilliant invention right and so via that invention which is the idea that you can live out 
you know, your fantasy through another human being. In the first iteration, it was more pleasure-based where you can kind of control them like Sims avatar, where you're really just trying to live out either fantasies or just mundane thing, whatever. But then, of course, it evolves into more of a, uh, for lack of a better comparison, but it is a gaming movie, a Call of Duty-type fantasy, where the only point is violence and, and death and murder. And the way that that's co-opted to, instead of being a liberating thing, actually becomes an imprisonment for everybody, whether you are the, obviously, the convicts who are forced to participate uh, in these rituals, or even the civilians who are, you know, quote-unquote, the players, because they are technically perpetuating their own oppression, because they're giving into this, and they're saying they want it, even though they don't. So, Uh, My pick is Gamer. I thought it was a very fun flick. I thought the action was pretty great. It it has a certain, you know, it's made by the same duo who made the Crank movies, which are also great. And at a certain point, one of the few filmmakers, I would say, that are in the school of Michael Bay Mm -hmm. that actually uh, understand, at least when Michael Bay was good, uh, what the power of that kind of visual schemas is when, when, when put with the right subject matter and certainly with the right filmmakers. And so obviously get ready if you haven't seen it for shaky cam and a lot of fast cuts and whatnot, but it really all does coalesce into something that's, I would say a choreographed really well in spite of itself and B uh, just extremely exhilarating from scene to scene. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was my pick gamer from 2009. Great, great pick. I mean, as, as, as you said, I've been a fan of this for a while. And um, you're right about Neville Dean Taylor, um, how they are kind of sort of out of the um, Michael Bay school in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that they're exactly like him, but certainly no, no, no. descendants. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's a great book by uh, Stephen Shaviro called uh, Post-Cinematic Effect. And um, he talks about several films th- that kind of uh, embody this sort of like post-continuity in a sense where they're breaking the access line they're moving you know because michael bay is very famous for this i mean michael bay he basically every single shot is a new shot like if if he's talking if there's two people talking it's you know cut reverse cut each one of those new those shots is a new shot from a different angle i mean and i think neville dean taylor sort of embraced some of that but in this case the lack of continuity and the confusion makes such perfect sense in the realm of the game and in the realm of the way the characters are so uh, enslaved really i mean uh, you know yeah. they're they're basically given these options that are really no options at all um it, it is absolutely exhilarating but it's also wickedly satirical yes and uh, i would say sure. uh, michael c hall especially is really biting down hard on his role which is kind of cool because you don't see him do those kind of roles too much and i will say about his character really quick is that that was 2009 and i'm not saying silicon valley wasn't a thing mm-hmm. but it wasn't as prevalent in pop culture yet True. at that time. True. So I, I don't want to say it got there first or anything like that, but talk about a performance that has aged extremely well mm-hmm. because, you know, we are living in a post uh, social network world where most of us are fully aware of how these uh, quote unquote people supposed human beings in theory yeah but it's true though in in the tech industry where they think that they're giving us the elixir of life and in reality Mm -hmm. they're just making our lives worse so 
True, true. I, I seem to remember there's even a in the climax he has this sequence in which uh there's this whole choreographed musical number of um I've got you under yes. my skin, I wanna say, or something. Yes. And uh it's creepy and and just brilliant and it's so it's great. totally unexpected, but it's just the right thing at the end there. I completely agree. So yeah, that was that was my pick. Gamer. 2009. I think it pairs very well with uh, Dead End Driving. I agree. You know, like you said, candy colored. You know, and I think you're right because both of these dystopias, there's a certain attractiveness to them. Of course, underneath it, it's 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 horrific. But on the surface, you can see how people would be kind of attracted to it. Like, oh, it's not so bad. It's kind of pretty. You know, yeah, I don't know. It's no, yeah. it's kind of uh, aesthetically pleasing. Yeah, the terms of service have nothing on what you actually get out of it. <laughs> True that. So uh, my pick is, it's not the same kind of story, and it's not the same kind of tone, but it feels like... I was waiting for that to just go on and on. And it's not the same kind of country, and it's not the same <laughs> yeah. kind and of... It's, and it's not really yeah. a film. It's actually a commercial for Hallmark. Yeah. And it's also, and it's not really... No, I'm kidding. But it does feel like, despite not being the same story or tone, it does feel like it's the same milieu as Dead End Drive-In. Like they could both... Both of these films could exist in the same dystopian future universe. And the film I'm choosing is The Rover by David Michaud. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. Now, I know you are a huge fan of Michaud's uh, Animal Kingdom, which is a fantastic film. Yes. And I know you're not yes. as hip on The Rover, but I, I do think... I need to rewatch it, but my first impression was not particularly favorable. Anyway. That's fair. Well, the characters are not particularly likable, particularly Guy Pierce, who... Usually he's a little likable no matter what, just because he's Guy Pierce. Even when he plays a bastard, like in Mildred Pierce or something, he's still Guy Pierce. But in this, he is just aggressively unlikable. And yet at the same time, you, I found myself totally gripped by the story. It's set in Australia and it's set in a time where much like Dead End Driving, the world economy has floundered and really the bottom has fell out somehow. I don't, we don't know exactly. Both film's plots hinge heavily on Australian car culture. Uh, by car culture, I mean K-car, K-culture, because that's how you spell it if you're into muscle cars and stuff. And in, in another sense, the police in both the Rover and in Dead End Drive-In, not the police in the Drive-In, but the ones outside, are similarly overwhelmed. But in the Rover, they're much more sympathetic, to be honest with you. Sure. And there's a particular scene... With Robert Pattinson and Guy Pierce at a police station, which shows, I don't want to say too much, but it shows one of the characters doing something that is simultaneously extremely touching, but also totally, completely wrong morally. And it's, you're really torn by it. And it, well, you're not really asked to make a judgment, but it's, it's beautifully done. And it's, it's a very fascinating film. That, like I said, I could honestly, in a sense, see it existing in the same sort of post-Wall Street meltdown that, you know, Dead End Driving did. They definitely feel like there could be, like you're saying, part of the same universe, just at different points in the timeline, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's my pick. That's awesome, actually. I will say The Rover is one of those movies that I didn't quite care for, but I also would totally rewatch because I don't quite trust my opinion on it. Mm. Like, there are some movies where I'm like, that didn't work, but I don't know if it was me or the movie. Like, there are some times where I'm like, sure, I'm not going to like this no matter what. So I, you know, whatever. Like, I'll rewatch <laughs> it, but uh, good luck. <laughs> you know, whatever. But, um, well, the key is you got to call the movie The Rover. 
the Rover. That's very true. It's like drinking the fastest, which I've been doing this whole time, by the way. Well, I will say part of what maybe rubbed me the wrong way is that I do love a good pun as much as the next person. But uh, when I realize what the title, mm-hmm. I both will say I thought it was brilliant, but also like, is that the only reason this movie exists? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> It, one one could, in a negative light seat, is kind of a cheap pun. And I don't want to say anything more because yeah, I was genuinely yeah, yeah. surprised at the end. So I don't want to say anything to give anything away. Me too. Uh, that's a great, great pick. Um, Thank you. I do want to give an honorable mention really quick uh, because it doesn't qualify because it is not a film. It is said it is a scene. It's a Hallmark film, commercial from yes, the uh, you late mentioned it 80s. earlier, so I got to bring it back. Right, up. it's about this. Uh, uh, no, I'm kidding. Five year old girl who sends a card to. It's very heartwarming. And no, I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, no. I was gonna. I thought we were talking about the same commercial. I was talking about the one with the brother and sister who want to fuck each other because the air conditioning won't work. Um, oh wow! I forgot about that's a Hallmark commercial. T- I forgot about that one. Yeah, no, it's not Hallmark, but it's a Sears or something like that. Oh my god! Yeah, yes. you know what I'm talking about. I kind of do. Where the whole commercial, you're like, oh wow, this is some sexy husband wife thing going on, and then you're like, the fuck yeah that's like well <laughs> yeah. that's the twist part at the end yeah and it's like well that's not helping <laughs> um anyway no no that's not a good kind of no. twist no um but the thing i do, I do want to say honorable mention uh, as to what i think in two minutes flat that's how i think long the scene is probably no other piece of media has ever captured what dead end drive-in has like this scene which is the scene in the seminal comic book adaptation, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the 90s, oh, yeah. in which the the crime syndicates speak easy for children. Yes. <laughs> is is shown and you see like quite literally like what children would think of as like the ultimate vices, whether it's the half pipe in the corner, the arcade games, totally. the bar that I think is soda only. And then at the at, at at the very end of the spectrum is somebody carrying a whole carton of cigarettes for some reason like no they're not just smoking but they're they're just carrying around that whatever and sam rockwell shows up so anyway that is wow. uh that is my pick for most spiritual successor to dead end driving uh, i but. have not thought about that scene in years but i i totally remember it now yeah it was almost like pinocchio's pleasure island yeah. Where it's like, hey, kids, have cigars. No parents are here. Mm-hmm. And you're like, something bad's going to come out of this. I just know it. Yeah. You know, also, though, speaking of not just Sam Rockwell, but you know who else is in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Uh, I mean, I do, but who are you thinking of? I'm thinking of the great Elias Codius. Well, plays okay, Casey man, Jones. Yes. I, I was going to say. I Actually, I will say like, this. I, hot take. I think yeah. his performance in that is actually one of the best performances in any comic book movie. I would agree. He completely owns that role without being above it, and yet also giving it an extremely, extremely charming energy that's completely suited for the role. I, I genuinely love that first movie and, and him in it. I actually love it, too. I actually saw it in the theater, and I loved it. And uh, honestly, that was the first thing I'd seen Elias Codius in, so <laughs> odd as this sounds. Yeah, when I yeah. saw Exotica, I was like, isn't that Casey Jones? So that was my yeah. point of yeah. reference. No, that was definitely my introduction to him as well. And as I told you earlier this year, I watched all of Adam McGoin's films this year. Yes. So I've certainly gotten another side of uh, 
why as Cody is, but I would honestly put his performance in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the same level as his best performances in uh, in Egoyan's films. Sorry, but uh, I think it's just as hard sometimes to try to 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 do that kind of drama, but then also to uh, in the case of the turtles to also sell that convincingly. That's that's tough shit. No, I actually agree with you. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but you're right. I mean, he never overplays anything, and it does feel like he's literally talking to the turtles. I mean, like during that big duel at the beginning with uh, who is it, Leonardo? Maybe where yeah, probably he's like, uh, "How about cricket?" And Leonardo's like, "Cricket." You got to know what a crumpet is to know know to play, you know, but I mean, they're actually having, he's having a real honest to God conversation with a dude in a turtle suit and it totally works. Wait, not to, uh, yeah. Did you just, did you say a dude in a turtle? uh, An honest, no, 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 no. I didn't say, I said an honest to God turtle wearing human clothes. And that's what I meant. I didn't. No, I didn't okay. say anything about a suit. No, I meant the suit of. Okay, I'm clothes. sorry. I just got really confused for a second. No, 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 okay. no, no. Right. It's a real turtle. Right. Uh, they're, well, thank oh, you for clearing yes, that up. Yes, and, and Splinter is a real rat mouse thing. I actually almost had a panic attack just a moment ago. So it's, you're like Judge okay. Reinhold at the end of Santa Claus. You know, where it's like everything I've I've believed in my whole life has just gone to hell, and yet I'm so happy because Santa's here. You know. Uh, yeah. but I mean, like, and even like the scene, n- not to get into this too much, but the scene where they are talking to Splinter when he's gone and they're at the campfire, yeah. like it's a genuinely touching scene. And it's like, man, oh, how yeah. did they pull that off? It's so good. I'm, yeah. I'm completely, I know. completely on board. Um, so you're welcome listeners for that little turtle detour. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, we'll be sure to take many, many more on future episodes of Project Exploitation. Coming up on our next episode, very excited, it's my pick, and we are doing Dario Argento's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And I am so, so excited because I think, A, it's one of my all-time favorite movies. B, uh, as we've got on this show, uh, two Brian De Palma fans. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a huge influence on his work. I mean, obviously the entire subgenre is, but this movie in particular, I think, goes into his very specific kinks and fetishes. And um, yeah, we're very, very excited for that. And uh, also, just a little tease, uh, after that episode, we are going to be shaking things up a bit. We're not going to be uh, making a permanent change or anything like that, but we're going to take a little detour that's, uh, well, it's not about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I'll, I'll say that much, sure. And uh, but I think people will be pleasantly surprised by what we have in store. It'll be a fun way to kind of expand the scope of Project Exploitation. So, <sighs> Dan, I think this was great. It was great catching up with you. It was a mm-hmm. fantastic uh, discussion, I think, about Dead End Driving. And um, uh, you can catch it on Blu-ray if you want to see a great restoration by Aero Video. Their their disc is fantastic, and uh, that's where how I watched it. I assume that's how Dan watched it as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. It's, I mean, I had only seen it yeah. on VHS before, so this was revelatory, I would say. Absolutely. So uh, we will uh, catch you next time, and uh, yeah. Keep it real. It just needs an end, Max. I, I don't have an end.